You can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to City on a Hill. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you this morning. If you would, turn in your copy of Scripture to Psalm 98. That's where we'll be this morning. We're continuing our Advent series entitled Christmas Songs. But first, a story. In 1674, a man named Isaac Watts was born in England. He was described as precocious, a bit of a prodigy and genius. He learned Latin at four, Greek at nine, French at 10, and Hebrew at 13. At the age of seven, he wrote an acrostic poem, which if you don't know what it is, an acrostic is just each, each um, line starts with a particular letter in a kind of intentional way. And he he made this acrostic using his name. So we actually uh, have it here for you. You can see it up on the screen. I am a vile, polluted lump of earth, so I've continued ever since my birth. Although Jehovah grace doth daily give me, as sure this monster Satan will deceive me. Come therefore, Lord, from Satan's claws, relieve me. Wash me in thy blood, O Christ, and grace divine impart. Then search and try the corners of my heart, that I in all things may be fit to do service to thee and thy praise too. I don't know about you, and I, to be fair, don't have a seven-year-old, but I've interacted with some seven-year-olds, I've watched some seven-year-olds in in kids' ministries, and this isn't the sort of... um, works that they're typically producing for me, okay? <laughs> so I'm noticing his abilities. Some, some friends offered to uh, pay for him to go to university, um, and he, he did end up attending university to become a minister, but dropped out around the age of 20, moved back home. And it was around this time that he moved back home that he started to get a little... Um, discontent with the quote-unquote heartless songs that they were singing at church. And so his father challenged him, and maybe your father has said something similar to you at some point. Uh, If you don't like it, why don't you write something better? And so he did. Every week for the next, it's like listening to me, every week for the next two years, he would write a new song for Sunday morning. Watts eventually would become a pastor and go on to write several books. One uh, is kind of after my own heart, was a book on logic. It was called Logic, the Right Use of Reason and the Inquiry After Truth, which today would be considered more philosophy than theology. So if we were putting this on a spectrum, that'd probably be like way over here. And way over here, which is which is where I'm kind of out of my depth. Like, the, the, you, the me you see up here on stage is like as excited and animated as I, and expressive as I get, right? So way over here, he wrote a collection of, um, of hymns based on his study of the Psalms. And one of those hymns came out of kind of the second half of his study on Psalm 98, and that hymn was none other than Joy to the World. Essentially, the same joy to the world as we sing today. And if I had asked you, okay, what, what Christmas song best 
encapsulates joy or is the paradigm of joy or the most joyful, you would probably have said, or most of us would probably say, joy to the world. So our task this morning is in examining Psalm 98 together and just to say, what reasons do we have to rejoice from this? What, how does this lead us to true joy? What did Isaac Watts see in Psalm 98 that led him to write joy to the world? So you probably have guessed it already this morning. We're talking about the song of joy. And we're going to do it through these kind of three characteristics of Christ that we can rejoice in this Christmas season. Rejoicing in Christ's redemptive plan fulfilled, Rejoice in Christ's lordship and rejoice in Christ's coming judgment. But first, let's pray and ask the Lord for his working this morning. Father, thank you for your word and all of its diversity. When we are sad, there's something there for us to lament. When there's happy, there's something to rejoice with. It's the source of our joy. No matter where we are, we can go to your word and it has something for us. As we come to your word this morning, of course, we want to know truth. We want to discern truth from what you have for us. But let us not be so captivated by truth that we miss out on the joy that's found in your your word and who you are. Help us to know and feel that joy this morning. Amen. Again, if you haven't found your way there yet, we're going to be in Psalm 98 this morning and actually going to take it in a few chunks as we do the point. So we'll start with just verses 1 through 3, and then we'll talk about the point. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Just like the psalmist instructs us in verse 1, together we'll rejoice in God's redemptive plan fulfilled. We'll rejoice in God's redemptive plan fulfilled. The psalmist exhorts his readers to sing to the Lord a new song because he has done marvelous things. And then kind of goes on in the next verses to elaborate on what those marvelous, wondrous things are. Verse 2, he has made known his salvation, revealed his righteousness to the nations. Verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love to Israel. I think that would be helpful uh, for us at this point to kind of take some time to recount that revealed righteousness and his salvation, his redemptive plan, and that fuller understanding that we now have kind of coming on the other side of Jesus' first coming. And it's in remembering and recounting these things that we'll find the joy of the plan fulfilled. So we're going to do a kind of a quick survey of Scripture together. There's more that could be said about this, of course, these threads, these themes throughout Jesus, throughout Jesus, throughout Scripture that culminate in Jesus. Uh, People write whole books on them, of course. So we'll hit the highlights and we'll rejoice in what we can talk about 
this morning. And I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. This is after Adam and Eve had sinned, and we kind of get the first glimpse of God's redemptive plan. So it should be on the, the screen here. You're welcome, of course, to follow along too in your Bible. Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Humanity, God's special image bearers, that's what we are, right? I, I Preached a whole sermon on this, if you remember, at our kind of last family service, that we are God's image bearers. God's special image bearers shall be redeemed by the woman's offspring. Now, in the ESV, at the very end of verse 15, they translate it, bruise your head and bruise his heel. I'm sure in other uh, translations, you've heard things like crush your head and strike his heel things like that. And I kind of like those better, but we'll kind of leave it to the scholars to debate what's the best translation for that. The point we can all agree on, and kind of the main point of that part, is that this single person, he, is going to defeat the serpent. And that's the plan for redemption. He's going to make everything right. He's going to reverse the curse Restore God's image bearers, redeem what happened in the garden and the world through this one person. And later in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God speaks with a man named Abram, who would later be known as Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you catch that at the end there? Not only would Abram, Abraham be blessed, but through him, through his descendants, the whole world would be blessed God had a plan not just for Israel, Abraham's descendants, but for the whole world. Later, we're told explicitly Abraham's descendants, the kingdom of Israel, was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And like priests, they were supposed to stand between people and God and bring them closer together. That they might experience the blessings of God's truth and justice and favor and discipline and holiness. But... We know how that turned out, right? By the time uh, we get to the Exodus, they're already being disciplined for their unfaithfulness, and so a new generation enters the Promised Land. But then again, by Joshua chapter 2, verse 10, the Israelites didn't know God, just like that wicked generation in the wilderness. And in time, Israel would come to reject God as their king and demand a human king, just like the other nations. Now, one of the most famous of these kings was King David. And even though he was um, known as a man after God's own heart, he also sinned in grievous ways. 
And yet there was still a promise, a covenant that God made in 2 Samuel 7 with David. And in verse 13, promises that his offspring will sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. How can that be? These trajectories, these threads from the Old Testament culminate with the coming of Jesus in the New Testament, where he fulfills them all. The long-awaited messianic king of the line of David comes in the form of Jesus, the promised son of God, the one who will take away the sins of the world. In this way, Jesus fulfills God's covenant with David. He reigns forever. And one day he will come back to directly reign here in his everlasting kingdom on earth. He's the promised seed of Eve that was going to crush the servant's head. And he did when he died on the cross for us. And he tamed death itself. That's Hebrews 2.14. Satan is defeated but has not yet received the, the kind of full weight of his punishment. Eventually with Jesus' second coming... He'll cast Satan and his demons into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20, the ultimate kind of crushing the head of the serpent. Jesus is God's perfect image bearer, the exact representation of who he is to the world, Colossians 1.15. And in this way, the church functions as the priesthood. God desired the Israelites to be the image bearers that Adam and Eve were supposed to be. And that comes from 1 Peter 2.9, which I actually will read this morning. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now that was a lot of scripture, kind of survey again. A lot of scripture not from Psalm 98, but it informs what we're looking at when we're talking about God's salvation and how he remembered Israel. But a fair question at this point would be, are we being naughty and kind of importing all of that into our understanding of this psalm? Am I going to be on Santa's naughty list this year for bringing those things in when the psalmist wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus came? It's a fair question, right? And I think, I think we're okay. I think we are, obviously, since I decided to do it. Um, it does bring up an interesting question, which we won't get into, of this kind of like dual authorship. There's a human author, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, and how much did he know and all that stuff. Another thing we'll leave to the scholars. But us on this side of redemption get to look back and see more fully God's salvation and how he has blessed the nations and how he has been faithful to Israel by keeping and fulfilling his covenants. And so it's an interesting question to say what, what was the psalmist kind of thinking about as he penned these words? Was it, you know, God saving Israel when he defeated Egypt's army and things like that that were already in the past? Or was he looking forward to the coming Messiah? There's value in that. But for us this morning, we can look back and see what Christ has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. 
Through Jesus' sacrifice, salvation has been made available to all the ends of the earth, and we can rejoice. We can make a joyful noise that we have freedom from sin, and we finally can accurately reflect God's image. We can make a joyful noise because we see the fulfilling of his redemptive plan over thousands of years. We can make a joyful noise for sending his son, the promised offspring of Eve, of David, to crush the ruler of this world and to be its true ruler. And when we get to verse 4, which we're about to get to, the psalmist says, all the world should make a joyful noise. We understand because the whole world is blessed and has access to Jesus' saving work. And the whole world should be, ought to be blessed by us, his chosen priesthood, as we seek to bring them closer to him and bring light to the world. We can say, joy to the world, the Lord has come and he has done marvelous things. That's our first way we can rejoice his redemptive plan fulfilled. And part of that, a kind of culmination of that plan, is the second way we can rejoice this morning, rejoice in his kingship. Rejoice that I'm not the king. Rejoice that you're not the king or anyone else. So let's look at verses 4 through 6 together now. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And again, we're exhorted, praise the Lord, make a joyful noise unto him. And part of this point comes from that name of God, how often we refer to him as the Lord. You've probably heard this before, that uh, that comes from his name, Yahweh, uh, and that's kind of uh, how you would pronounce it if you were reading it directly. At some point in history, the Jews wanted to be absolutely sure that they weren't taking the Lord's name in vain. So whenever they see that, that word, Yahweh, they read it as Adonai, which is the word for Lord. So in our Bible, that's why it's translated Lord. The fact is, when we talk about the Lord, we all know who we're talking about. We're acknowledging his kingship, that he is the true king. That's kind of a, maybe a first sub-point of three that we'll have for this larger point. We also see this more directly in verse 6 when he's called the king, the Lord. So you might say, okay, Jeff, Jesus is king, he's the Lord, great I kind of knew that already. How does that lead me to joy? How does that lead me to joy? I have a couple of things for that that I think are intuitive to us. First, isn't it true that having kind of the right tool for the right job or the right person in the right place produces joy? It's in all sorts of business books, right? You got to get the right people on the bus, and you got to get the right people on, in the bus on the right seat on the bus. And that's how you make your you know, company thriving and your employees happy and all this other stuff, right? I'm sure all of us have experienced this in our own kind of professional careers at one point or another. If you're in a spot that doesn't suit your gifts very well, that doesn't fit you, uh, it's hard to be happy and it's hard to be content. But if you're in a spot that fits your gifts well, that, that are utilizing those that you kind of thrive in, then all of a sudden 
There's lots of joy in your work. And we've all experienced the joy or the curse of, of being under someone who, um, either a manager, a team leader, something like that, who is in the right spot themselves, and, and maybe the, the not a lot of joy or the hardship of being under a supervisor who maybe isn't in the right fit for them and trying to kind of submit to their leading. Joy is created when the right people are in the right spot. There's also a joy in the authentic, the, the genuine, the real article, that certain quality. We know this intuitively also. It happens all the time in our life. Let me ask you this to kind of illustrate. How many of us have ever had toasted O's? Have ever had the pleasure of partaking of toasted O's? There's a few of us, right? Not a whole, uh, not a whole heaping ton of us, not everyone, but some of us have had toasted O's. There's a picture to uh, refresh your memory. Now this, this box of toasted O's right here as of this week, can get, be bought at our local Walmart for $1.34. So my question for us is, why aren't we all enjoying some Toasted O's? Why is Cheerios the best-selling cereal in the world when I can get a box of Toasted O's for $1.34, right? It's because there's some, something about the original the genuine article, a certain quality that makes it worth it to us to pay the extra $3 or whatever it is. And in that same way, we can rejoice that Jesus is the true king, the right person in the right spot, the real deal, because he is that genuine article, and there's joy in that. It's true, though, isn't it, that oftentimes in our hearts, we are putting other things in that spot of king, other things besides Jesus. And inevitably, anything we try to put there isn't the real deal. It turns out to be toasted O's, right? It could be, um, like we were talking about last week, control or, or getting a certain circumstance a certain way. It could be ourselves. I get to decide what's true. I get to decide what's good for me, what's right. It could be other people that become so important in our lives. All of a sudden, they control us. Whatever that thing is, that is the decision-making authority in our lives. And oftentimes, it can subtly kind of shift for a lot of us from God and his word to me and my feelings about something. And can we admit that when we choose not to do what we know is right, it's because we'd rather do something else. It's as simple as we'd rather do something else. I'm thankful for our church family. You, you heard kind of Zach announce it during announcement times on Tuesday. We have this Christmas toy shop. It takes a lot of people, a lot of donations and different things like that. Um, and there's no way for us to like force everyone like, hey, do this thing. But because of your love for the Lord and desire to love others, uh, we have all the volunteers we need. We have plenty of gifts and things like that. So I just want to uh, first just thank you guys and just kind of rejoice in there's joy when we 
live in God's way for us, when we love others like God asks us to. And yet these idols we're so inclined to promise a lot, promise to make you happy, but they never deliver. They never give us the joy. And, and in fact, they distract from that joy of the Lord. And when we do these things, we're doing just what the Israelites did in Jeremiah chapter 2. This was a, a, a big kind of passage for me in my walk with Christ, Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You guys are kind of tracking with the analogy, the metaphor, right? That God is this fountain you can kind of picture as a fountain that recycles its own water. It's kind of representing the infinite. There's, there's infinite kind of joy, satisfaction to be found there. But instead of going there, we so often try to make our own cisterns. You can think of it as kind of like a reservoir for water that, that people um, make. And instead, we try to make these things to store water, but it's broken and there's a hole in it and the water just seeps out. You pour yourself some Cheerios, go to take a bite, and it's not as good as you expect. It ends up just being the generic Walmart version of what you actually wanted, what actually would satisfy. It's an idol. Now, I had a really, um, I would even say beautiful, heartwarming, a photoshopped image of Idolos for you this morning, but it didn't make it into the slideshow for, for whatever technical reason. So you'll just have to imagine what that would have been like. And I'll show off my, um, my Photoshop skills another time. So, um, but the point is, right, these idols, these other kings, they promise you uh, the joy and it doesn't satisfy. So if there is any area in your life where you're not feeling very joyful. I think it's good to ask ourselves, am I cheating myself out of joy by pursuing some sort of idol here? Am I cheating myself out of some joy by pursuing some idol? Am I after the generic rather than the real deal? Am I changing out the fountain of living waters for trying to make my own broken cisterns? Now, I want to kind of give this caveat of I don't think every little bit of unhappiness comes from idolatry. I'm thinking about the life of Jesus. Uh, he didn't have any idols, right? He was perfect. But he, he wept when Lazarus died. He was, uh, before he was hung on the cross in the garden, uh, sweating blood. He was so um, upset by what was to come. I don't think if you saw someone there praying, sweating blood, you would think, wow, that person is really, really happy, right? So I think there's room for that in our lives. But I also think there are a lot of places where we could have more joy if we did this hard work of rooting out idols. And I don't think we often think about it that way. Like, I don't think we often think I, would ha I could have more joy 
by rooting out idols. Or, or one kind of source of joy is eliminating idols in my life. And it's true because it's not immediate gratification, right? This, that's hard work. But I do think in the long term, it leads to joy. Because those things can't satisfy like the real king. That's kind of the second sub-point. Third sub-point is that he's not just real, he's also the best possible king. Okay, how does this lead to joy? Well, it's kind of obvious, but we'll, we'll illustrate it anyway. We like the best things, right? We like best things when we can get it. Um, for example, to kind of carry on with this work theme we had going on, if, if at work they said, you can pick anyone you want to be your manager or your boss, anyone at all, who would you pick? Well, you certainly put, wouldn't pick the worst one, right? You would pick the best one, because you think that would be what was best for you. Similarly, if you're married, you chose your spouse because you thought they were the best for you. Now, this isn't the time to go to your spouse and be like, see, I'm, I'm the best. Or maybe the opposite and be like, that's not why I picked you or something like that. So if that's any of that, just keep it to yourself, right? No, you chose your spouse because you thought they were the best one for you. God is perfection, just like that. God is perfectly wise. He's perfectly kind. He's all-knowing. He knows everything as he rules. He's the greatest possible thing of anything. It doesn't matter who you are. He fits you, and he is your perfect king, the perfect king for you. And he has the power to do it. We can rejoice knowing that he will be king and no one can stop him. He will be king no matter what. I'm looking at Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The seventh angel and the trumpet and all that is, is a little weird, but what I want us to focus on is the end. Jesus is coming back to rule his kingdom, and he will rule forever and ever. And us acknowledging that or not acknowledging that or anything anyone can do will not stop that. And we can sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Make a joyful noise before your king, the Lord. That's our third reason for joy we have this season. Not just that he is king, but he is coming back to judge. And we can rejoice in Christ's coming judgment. He is coming back again. And we'll read the rest of the passage and then we'll talk about that point. Verse 7. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now the psalmist is bringing in creation to uh, the worship, all, all of the earth, which sometimes in scripture is, is just meaning like all of humanity. All of the earth in this case is including all the earth literally, the hills and the rivers and things like that. 
Now, obviously, hills don't sing and rivers don't clap. That's uh, personification in case it's been, you know, maybe a couple years since English class. But the psalmist is using this figurative language to say all creation is rejoicing. We can at least kind of get that from it. And the question is, okay, why? 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 And in verse 9, it says, because the Lord is coming to judge the earth. And like we were saying, he is the, the perfect king, the perfect judge. He's, he's all-knowing, won't be deceived, will judge impartially and righteously. And those are all things that are good. But I also kind of want to import another understanding of this judgment from another passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And this idea, this phrase, the judgment seat, is the same one that appears in a couple of the Gospels to describe where Pilate was sitting as he is kind of deciding Jesus' fate. So you can kind of get the idea of, of what kind of goes on before the judgment seat. And this same sort of idea applies to all of us, that we must appear before Christ's judgment seat. And I don't know about you, but to me that sounds more terrifying than, woohoo, let's rejoice in this thing, right? But I think we do have reason to rejoice in it. And I kind of um, have a couple thoughts to share with you this morning specifically about that. One, if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Christ this morning for the forgiveness of your sins, trusting in his sacrifice on the cross for you, have confessed him as Lord, your sins are paid for. He has forgiven all of your sins. You are made righteous in him. You have nothing to worry about. That kind of brought up a question to me as I was thinking about this, though, was um, if my sins are paid for, then, then what does this passage mean when it says I'm going to receive what is due for the good and evil done while in the body? I don't have time to um, kind of give the full-fleshed argument for an hour or something like this, so I'm going to give you a nice summary from um, Anthony Hoekema, the professor of systematic theology at Calvin Theological Seminary. I think just does a nice job of capturing it. The failures and shortcomings of believers will enter into the picture on the day of judgment. But, and this is an important point, the sins and shortcomings of believers will be revealed in the judgment as forgiven sins, whose guilt has been totally covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So there's some sort of factoring in as Jesus is dishing out rewards but we are guilt-free. We are forgiven. Do you remember what, in the parable of the talents, at the end, what the master says to the two servants who did as they were supposed to with what he had given them? We'll hear instead, just like them, well done, good and faithful servant. And he goes on to say, enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. It's joyful because we have nothing to fear. And it's joyful because we will be entering into the, his joy, the everlasting joy. 
And if you haven't done that, if you're not a believer, you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, I think it's okay to kind of let that scare you a little bit. Like, I'm not sure I am prepared for that coming judgment. Not to be paralyzed in fear, but to, to let it lead you to action. You can know that you know that you know that you're on your way to heaven today. You can make that choice today to put your faith and trust in Jesus, and we would invite you to. If there are things that are in your way, if you'd like to talk about it, uh, we would love to be a part of that conversation. Pretty much anyone here would love to have a chance to talk to you about that, so please do if that's you. That's kind of the number one kind of way we rejoice in the coming judgment. The second is because he is coming to make all things right. I don't know about you, but there's a lot in this world that I'd like to be able to do something about. There's unjust war and death and murder. There's sickness that has no cure. And the wickedness we show one another. Revelation chapter 21 verses 4 through 5 says, He is coming back to make all things right. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He is making all things new. He is fixing what is broken. He is redeeming the world and righting the wrongs. The truth about the song, Joy to the World, is that Isaac Watts more had in mind, like Psalm 98, Jesus' second coming than the first yet. I think what he wrote captures uh, both the first and second coming nicely. That's why we sing it around Christmas. It captures this sense we see throughout the Bible of the already, but not yet. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. The Lord is come. That's some kind of old English construction we don't use anymore of kind of imperfect, ongoing. It has happened in the past. Jesus has come, and he still is here. He hasn't left. But we also know the not yet part of it is Jesus is coming back again. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. Jesus reigns. He's defeated Satan. But there's coming a day, like we mentioned, where that defeat will be made complete, where he throws them in the lake of fire. And like our first Revelation passage this morning said, with his return, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of Christ. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Jesus freed us from the curse, again, when he died for us. But in the new heavens and new earth, that redemption of what happened in the garden, there will be no more curse, no more thorns, no more sorrows, and no more sins. And that is something to rejoice about this morning. So 
Spoiler alert, we're going to sing Joy to the World as our closing song this morning. You probably guessed that already. And I just want us, as we're singing, I know it's easy, we, all of us have probably sung, or most of us, definitely if you grew up in the church, have heard, sung Joy to the World since we were very, very small. And it's easy for it to become kind of rote, kind of like just something we do and sing, and it's kind of fun when it comes back every year. But as we're singing it this morning, I want us to think about what we've talked about. What joy we have in Jesus' coming, what he has done, what joy we have in Jesus now is doing, and what joy we have looking forward to Jesus' second coming and what he will do. Let's pray to that end. Father, help us to pursue that joy. The joy of the fountain of living waters and not try to make for ourselves this, this joy of other kings, this joy of broken cisterns that don't actually hold any water. Reveal to us anything we set up in our lives as these false kings in place of you. Some of us here this morning, just as I'm, I'm thinking, my heart goes out to them, um, probably aren't feeling very joyful or happy this Christmas season. And maybe they're depressed or maybe there's something else going on in life right now. I just want to especially pray for them. Pray for your special presence and your special guidance for them and healing on their heart this Advent season. May our study of your word this morning be a fragrant offering to you and a worship to you. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son, through whom we might have true joy. Amen.